You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Jesus is going to show up one day and be like, I'm not back to restore anything. I just, I just need to take you outside, Bill, and have a conversation with you. So football, check, now we go to Bible. So Psalm 1, I want to read it one more time. Some of you heard it this morning. It's the thing uh, that we read uh, for those of you who show up on time. So for the other 80% of you, I'm going to read it again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel, everybody say counsel, of the wicked, nor stands in the, nor sits in the, those words are super duper important, of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the... Say it again. One more time. The way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as Karina reads another selection of scripture. A reading from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, 12 to 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you some, some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have been perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are, of, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And a reading from Luke 6. I expect you to memorize everything that you've heard so far today. And he came down with them, Jesus uh, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Notice it says, hear him first, be healed of their diseases second. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is 
is great in heaven, for so their fathers did the same thing to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. That's a lot of Bible right there, Salem. That's a lot of Bible for you. First thing I want to talk about here is we are hovering on the season, everybody's favorite season of Lent, where you give up something for 40 days that's good for you. Once again, don't give up cigarettes for Lent. Give up cigarettes for your lungs and give up carrots or something like that for Lent. Don't give up carrots for Lent. That was a joke. Give up candy or chocolate or soda, or anything that you're probably going to eat later today, give that up for Lent. You give up something that is enjoyable and celebratory for 40 days. Why? Because Jesus fasted for 40 days when he was in the wilderness, and I think it's fair that once in a while we try to be like Jesus. Amen? Hmm? Didn't know what to do there. If you didn't say amen, you don't want to be like Jesus. If you say amen, you got to fast something for 40 days. In a pickle, as they say. We fast and pray for 40 days for three reasons. For cleansing, for reopening, and for revisioning. We fast and pray for 40 days so that we can be cleansed from the pollution that happens in our soul just from living life. Not even from making mistakes, because that, ha- that creates pollution too, but just the day-to-day grind of living, hearing what we hear, seeing what we see, going through what we go through. It just sort of collects a sediment in our soul and in our spirit that every once in a while just needs a cleansing and a flush, and it's important to do that. We fast and pray for 40 days so that we can be open to the Spirit who is always in our midst. We don't ever conjure up the Holy Spirit. This is not some like divine Ouija board where if we say the right things and do the right incantations and perform the right magic, then the Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit never shows up because the Holy Spirit is always everywhere and every when. The Holy Spirit has already showed up in your tomorrow before you get there. That's how there's new mercies every morning. Anyone need them every once in a while? But the problem is, it's not that we don't hear from the Holy Spirit because he is not showing up. We don't hear from the Holy Spirit because we are so clogged up. Our spiritual arteries are so clogged with the things we've indulged in that we're not sensitive to a spirit that is not controlling or invasive. Does anybody know any controlling or invasive people in their life, not including me? Don't look at me and raise your hand. People are controlling and invasive because they have a way that they want to impose on other people. The Holy Spirit does not impose his way on other people. He woos, he beckons, he calls, but he does it gently because he won't violate you while he's trying to help you. And so the Holy Spirit waits for us to have enough space in our mind, in our soul, in our heart so that we can hear, see, feel his gentle yet redeeming and healing touch. It's one of the reasons why we fast and pray. I know when you look at my body type here, you can tell that I fast all of the time, and this is going to be very easy for me. Are you guys okay today? Are you nervous about how the roads are going to be afterwards? All right. Finally, and this is one of the most important things I'll ever say in my life, we fast and pray 
so that we can have a revisioning in our desires. We, you know, these kids, I'm so glad the kids are making noise because no one else seems to care about what's happening today. So you're doing good. You're doing good. Um, <laughs> our desires, you ever like say, I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to get it right. For, I've been getting this thing wrong and now I'm going to get it right. And three days later, you're like, all right, here's the thing. We're going to start all over again. We're going to get it right this time. A few days later, you're like, you know, here's the big one. This is the one I've hit rock bottom. Rock bottom is so much lower than we all really think it is. And so we keep trying and trying and trying and trying. Why? Because we have the right intention, but our desires have not changed. God wants to change our desire. When desire changes, you ready? When desire changes, you'll actually have to deny yourself less to do the right thing. That's the number one that God wants for our discipleship and our sanctification is that our desires actually change at a core level and we want new things because the things that God wants us to want, if we actually wanted them, we wouldn't be denying ourselves because we would want them. So we go through this repetitious season of Lent where we fast every year for 40 days so that we can train our body to want to desire new things. That's why we celebrate Lent. And that's why you're all going to come out for Ash Wednesday. It's the first Wednesday in March. You're going to come out for Ash Wednesday. You're going to let me put ashes on your face, which is everybody's favorite thing to let me do. We're going to step into this weird, borderline, macabre reality of Lent and be confronted with our mortality for a night. Again, everybody's favorite thing to do. But David says, give me a heart of wisdom that I may number my days. Because when we know that we have an expiration date in this life, we begin to treat this life with more respect and dignity than when we act like we don't know, like we're going to live forever. There's a hope that goes beyond death, but death comes first. Isn't this exciting? But it's true. And it's my job to tell you what is true. And so we're confronted with this ash that's reformed into the image of a cross to remind us that we do have an expiration date, that we need to treat life with a renewed sense of dignity and purpose, but that when death comes, Jesus has already healed death. Death has touched the hem of Jesus' garment and is going to be cured of itself one day and will become life. So we have a hope. But we have to live in between the suspension of the fact that we know we're going somewhere. We're going, we're going to be called home soon. And then Jesus is going to raise us. But if we only focus on the fact that we're going to die, we live in this naive negativity. But if we only focus on the fact that we're going to raise one day and not that we're going to die, we live in a naive optimism that drives people crazy. Have you ever met somebody that's way too optimistic? They're annoying. You know, the glass is half full. I just poured it out. Now it's completely empty. So say it again. What do you say now? I just poured your glass out, positive person. We need to be people who say, listen, here's the deal. I don't care if the glass is half empty or half full. Jesus gives us free refills. So what up? It's like Chuck E. Cheese. Just get the free refill all the time, anytime you want. So I just connected Lent, Ash Wednesday, and Chuck E. Cheese. Can you please come out for Wednesday? That was, that was really good. Grady loves it in the back. He's not goody. He's Grady back there. We're in a series right now called Members Who Remember. We're in a series right now called Members 
who remember, and it's a series about why it's important to be members of a local church. Why do we even do this? Why do we want to be members of a local church? This past January, I had enough questions asked to me about why we do this, so I wanted to speak about it for a little while. And I want to say this. Number one, the church is the location where we remember our baptism as the example of how our whole life is meant to be. When Paul talks about the baptism of Christ, he talks about his death, his burial, and his resurrection as his baptism. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is meant to mark our entire life. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is meant to show us how we are called to live every single day. We are called to live a life where we're willing to be plunged down into the muck and mire of society's evil and pull people up from down there, not cast judgment, not say you deserve to be down there, but go down there and join Jesus in seeking and saving those who are lost. Amen, pastor. Thank you, congregant. (laughs) Our job is not to look down into the abyss and say, they got what they deserved, and then we look around and say, where's Jesus? He's swimming down there going to get people. And our baptism isn't just the front door into the Christian life. Our baptism is what we are meant to do every single day. How many have walked into a Roman Catholic church before? How many have seen these little basins with water in them? They're there Because most Roman Catholics have been baptized as infants. And so that basin of water is there for them to remember every time they walk into the church that they have been baptized. We ought to have something similar for slightly different reasons. We ought to remember every day that we have been baptized, which means we join Jesus in his plunging into the worst of society to seek and save and cleanse that water for them. Yes, thank you, Lasowski, or Kowalski, as I like to call you. He looks like a Kowalski, I feel like. Last week, last week we said that the local church is where we realize our need for transformation, we undergo that transformation, and we share our transformation with the world around us that isn't going to church. We don't show up in front of them like Splodow, we're perfect now. We don't do that. We show them where we're being transformed. That takes every wall of defense down and reveals to people that the church is a place of people who are also very sick spiritually and we're being made whole. We're being made whole. So why do we become members of a local church? We become members of a local church as an expression of the fact that we're saying yes to our baptism, that we are now members of the body of Christ at large, and to express that, we're committed people to a local expression of that larger reality called the baptized community or the body of Christ. We are members who remember We are members of the body of Christ who join Jesus in remembering or putting people back together with the way that they were created to be. That is what our goal is. Our goal is to be put back together ourselves so we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in putting the world back together one small mustard seed moment at a time. We are inundated with social media that shows us what the largest 
movements are doing, what the most famous people are up to. And it's so exciting to watch what the church is doing across the world. Sometimes it's incredibly discouraging to watch what the church is doing across the world. But what we need to know is our small acts of just feeding a couple of officers, that is never compared to the large international mass movements of churches. Jesus looks at both and says, I'm going to bring my kingdom through this. So we are not... We don't have to walk around with the pressure to be having to do big things. We just need to do things with the Holy Spirit. And that comes from us being membered together so that we can remember. What does the thief say on the cross? When you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? Put me back together again. I'm alienated. I'm a criminal because something has happened and it has separated me from myself. Put me back together And there's Jesus with his hands stretched out to two broken people, pulling them, remembering them back together in himself. Remember in in Exodus when Moses, when Joshua was fighting and people had to hold Moses' hands up like this because whenever Moses' hands were raised, Israel was winning the fight. But whenever his hands dropped, Israel would lose. And Moses didn't have the motivation. He didn't have the adrenaline. He didn't have the, the excitement to keep his hands raised. He needed people to help him. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Look at at this picture of him on the cross there. His hands don't need help being outstretched because love holds them up. Love is what holds Christ's hands out to each criminal saying, I'm not putting them down until you know that I'm remembering you. We are supposed to be those arms on a daily, minute-by-minute basis, remembering we shouldn't be using our hands to point accusation. We should be using them to bring healing, hospitality, generosity to people's lives so they know they're being put back together. Today, seemingly very quickly, I want to talk about something that you've heard me say a little bit, and I want to bring some clarity to it. One thing you've heard me say is... The church will often say things, and if you, if you watch people preaching on YouTube and stuff, you will hear popular preachers say things like, you need to be around those people who get you to where you want to go. And don't be hanging around people who drag you down, who hold you back. You need to surround yourself with the people who are already living in the kind of success that you want to have. And I couldn't disagree with that garbage anymore. I could, I, I could use terms that are stronger than garbage, but I'm not going to because I'm wearing a collar right now, and that wouldn't be nice. I could pop it off real fast, but we're also on the internet, so we won't use them. But it's trash teaching, because if I'm only around you because you can get me where I want to go, I'm using you. I'm not loving you. I'm literally lusting after you so that you can be an asset to get me to where I want to be. Jesus, if he only hung out with people who were going where he was going, wouldn't have hung out with any of us on any day at any time. He would have hung out with me, but he wouldn't have hung out with any of you at all. But in response to that, it sounds like we're saying, go ahead and hang out with people who drag you down. But that can also be dangerous, We could be with people who are so toxic, they make us toxic. No one's ever toxified because of us. We're just 
toxified because of other people. Also, I just made up the word toxified. It's possible. Somebody should keep a track of the words I make up. What is the middle way? The middle way is the local church. Why? Because, listen to me, please hear this. People who have to separate themselves from people who drag you down are also people who don't have enough healthy relationship around them to be strong enough to be with people like that. So God wants us to pursue people who could otherwise drag us down. But how do we do that without being dragged down with them? We have a social network around us called the local church where we're developing such healthy relationships with each other that we are strong enough to pull other people up instead of them pulling us down. So the quality of our Christian community here is going to be directly proportional to how well we do out there in bringing life and healing and mercy and justice and grace to other people and not being dragged down by them. So if you're constantly saying, can't be around them, they're dragging me down. Can't be around them, they're dragging me down. Can't be around that person, they're dragging me down. What you're also confessing is you don't have healthy Christian relationship in your life. Because if you did, you'd be strong enough to say, they're not going to drag me down. I'm strong enough with my brothers and sisters in Christ to lift them up. People say it's easier to pull someone down off a chair, Pastor, than it is to pull someone up on it. First of all, I don't know why we'd pull people up onto chairs. Let's just sit in them, and then we don't have to worry about this. But to go with the analogy, if I got 15 people with me helping me pull somebody up, it's much easier. Amen? And so that's what we're here for. We're here to strengthen each other so that we can bear with the failings of the weak and love them into strength and show them a community of people where they can come in and be themselves. Notice in the gospel text, Jesus didn't teach before he healed. You, <laughs> this is not the way the church tends to be. The church tends to be, I'm going to teach you, and when you agree with our doctrines, then you're invited into our community for healing. Jesus says, I'm going to heal each and every one of you. Whether or not you believe in me, confess me, doesn't matter. I'm healing you, and when I do, you're going to want to hear what I have to say. Jesus heals. Jesus loves before confession is confessed. Maybe you're quiet because you're writing down that genius phrase that I just said. Fine. But Jesus loves before confession is confessed. Because it's only Jesus' love that creates in us the confession to say, I love you back anyhow. He heals, then he teaches. Because people who are healed want to hear what he has to say. That's how we should be. But we'll get back to that in a moment. If you haven't liked what I've said so far, buckle up, kids, because you're not going to like this. So here we go. Psalm 1. Let's start at the end of Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. Some of the most positive verses in all of Scripture. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Mm. They better get right, or they will get left. It's not what it says, though. It says, the way of the wicked will perish, not the wicked. Jesus is so good at loving that he can execute 
precise surgery to take out the thing in you that is making you wicked so that you are made whole. He doesn't have to toss you into fire to get what he wants. His love is a consuming that removes what is wicked in you so that all that is left is righteousness. You can continue to do the math on what that means. What I'm saying is, can we stand in front of people and discern the difference between who God made them to be and whatever wickedness we're discerning and say, I see a difference between the two. They are not their wickedness. And whenever they throw a man down in front of Jesus in the synagogue and say, Jesus, this man has a demon. Jesus doesn't kick the man out of the synagogue. He kicks the demon out of the man, and the man stays in the synagogue. That's what the love of Christ does. It's precision. When you're done with conversations like that, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children, or whether it's somebody you're ministering to outside of the church, when you discern the difference between when you can see the person and their humanity that God says is good, and you see the wickedness that's infecting their humanity, when you can discern the difference and love out of them their wickedness, you are tired, you are exhausted, you need self-care, you need refreshment, yes, but you've done good ministry work. When you just, when we just toss people hook, line, and sinker out because there's wickedness in them, we are not doing what Christ does. So the question is, maybe, and I'm just saying maybe, when it says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, maybe there will be no sinners in the congregation of the righteous because all the wicked have been made righteous. And there would be no sinners to stand there anyhow because the love of God performs surgery and he removes what is wicked and he leaves what is righteous now some of you might not agree with that but here's the thing none of you none of you love your children any other way than what i just described pastor god is not going to violate our free will to bring us where he wants to be yes he is how many of you have had kids? Who has kids right now? Your kid says to you, don't ever come near me again. I want nothing to do with you. Eric, Josh says, get away from me. In his intellectual little way, he says, get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. Don't ever come near me. We're done, over. I'm confessing pure rejection of you. Then one day you see him, and he's standing on train tracks, and a train is coming. And you're like, yo, there's a train coming. He's like, I told you not to talk to me. Do not talk to me. There's a train coming, though, dude. Don't talk to me. You will dive in front of that boy, violate his free will up one side and down the other to force him out of what could harm him. All of us love our kids that way. We talk about God like he's a parent that we're not. But none of you want to be in the image of God who wouldn't dive in front of that train whether he's rejected or not and violate the free will to bring healing to somebody's life. None of us would ever raise, and if we would raise our kids that way, Ron Green, time to call CPS. We all need help. Okay? Oh, I just feel like the anger of some people, and I'm so happy you're mad about that. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man or woman 
nobody freak out, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, walks nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice it says that these people don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or in the way of sinners or in the seat of scoffers, but it doesn't say they're not physically with them. It just says that we're not joining the thing being done, but it doesn't say we're not supposed to be in proximity with people like that. It just says be in proximity with them, but just don't join the methodology of their methods. Again, it's so much easier to say we're not going to be around them because I don't want to be infected. They're not covid They're human beings made in the image of God, and if we don't have the maturity to be around without joining, then we just need more discipleship ourselves, and that's okay. That's okay. But the two choices aren't indulge in what they're indulging in or ignore them altogether. The mature choice is be involved in their life. Don't join everything they're doing, but be involved. And that takes dexterity. That takes a lot of nuance. That takes a lot of thinking. And you know what else it takes? It takes a lot of other people in your life helping you live right. In the old days, we called it accountability partners. We need that. I need accountability in my life. So like, like, like an accountability partner is like a boat that lets you snorkel down, but it keeps you tethered to the boat. So you could go down into the abyss and see what is down there, but not get lost down there. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to dive into the muck and mire. Jesus went down into the river Jordan, down into the darkness, down into where all of Pharaoh's army has been drowned to go rescue them. It's not enough that just the Israelites came over. Jesus is like, all right, the Israelites got to the other side of the Red Sea. Good, I'm diving back in to go get everybody who just drowned. Because I'm going to make my enemies my friends. But it takes accountability. Well, did Jesus have accountability? Yes. Father, say it with me. Son, and everything Jesus did by himself, he did with two other people that is also himself. So where is our accountability? Paul Hansen stole my sermon today. Stole it. God's like, you still think it's your sermon? I have so many things that you need to learn, kid. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. It says in the book of Revelation that a river starts where? In the sanctuary. And it flows where? Out into the streets. It starts in the sanctuary and it flows out into the streets. All of the healing that that river brings into the streets is coming from waters whose source is the sanctuary of God. And so when we are planted by streams of living water, we are planted in the broken yet healing community we call the church. And when we are anchored and tethered in here well with each other, we can flow out there and bring healing. They don't muddy the waters. Our waters cleanse everything going on. That is what we are called to. It is why we become members of a local church, because we want to join the river of God's delights. 
We want to join the river that begins, it's sourced in the sanctuary of God, it's sourced in the Eucharist, it's sourced in the preaching, it's sourced in the worship, it's sourced in the expression of God's breathed out uniquely through the church, and it cascades into the world. One of my prayers is, Lord, I pray that your church would be like a river of life mingled with fire that begins in the sanctuary and floods beacon the Hudson Valley and the surrounding area, bringing healing and bringing revival to the land. And I pray that prayer, but I'm not asking God for some arbitrary, we don't want like an actual flood. I'm asking that God sends all of you out as a river of life mingled with fire, sourced here, tethered here, made whole and kept together here, and brought out there. And when it gets difficult and when it gets tough and you feel yourself slipping, right back in here you go. And we feed you and we love you and we worship with you and we strengthen you and we equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that you can go back out and continue that work of the ministry. And when it gets tired and aggravating and frustrating, you feel yourself slipping, you come back and we feed you again. That's the relationship we are meant to have. We're not here just to celebrate what God's done for us. We're also here to be equipped to beat our swords into plowshares, to go out there and win the world, not with accusation and threat, but with love. I'll probably steal this from a time that he uh, comes here in the future, but Pastor Mark Arsted said to me today on the phone, he said, you know, one of the biggest things God is teaching me is that I, wanted, I, was, I was valuing being respected and I wasn't valuing being loved. And being loved is so much more messy than being respected, but it lasts forever. That's what the world wants. The world wants to be loved, but we need to learn how to do that here. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, part two, there's a lot of debate about Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Because in Matthew 5, the same teaching, he's up on a mountain. In Luke, he, it says that he went down to a level place. And he teaches. And in Matthew's gospel, it just talks about the poor. In Luke's gospel, he talks about the rich. And back and forth, the debates go. And you know what? I'm landing the plane here. I think Jesus preached the same sermon twice. And I'm so glad as a pastor that Jesus preached the same sermon twice. Because we all have this need in all of our lives to always be creating something new. And sometimes God himself knows, nah, they don't need something new. They need to hear something again. As Randall Worley once said, if your pastor preaches and you say, I've heard this sermon 999 times, ask yourself why God knew you needed to hear it a thousand. (laughs) Jesus preaches again, and it says this. It says that he came down to them with his disciples. He came down from a mountain with his disciples. He came down from a mountain with the church, and he stands on a level place. Jesus does not stand over against people who need to hear his teaching. He stands on a level place. He doesn't see himself as higher or lower. He's with the world. He's with you. He's in the space you're in. Always on a level place. And he puts you on a level place. He healed before he taught. And as we said, love comes before confession. He healed his enemies before he taught them to not be enemy. He healed the wicked before he taught them how not to be wicked. He healed people into faith. We withhold our best until people's behavior changes. We even are taught in many ways to parent like that. 
offer your best and nothing changes somebody's behavior more than real authentic love does. And love involves discipline, but never discipline that harms. Never discipline that harms. Body or ego. Discipline that loves. And when you discipline your children in a way that doesn't harm them, guess what, mom and dad? You have to work harder to do those disciplines. It's so easy just to smack a kid. It's hard to withhold that and teach why something was wrong. Teach why, now, now I need to take time. Now I need to invest myself. I can't just do the easy indulgent thing, spank and go to your room. Now I have to sit there and actually talk to you about what happened and teach you without force why it was wrong. That takes more of me. And guess what? On Good Friday, God's, it, our discipline cost God quite a bit more than it cost us. Amen? Just saying. You're all like, wait until she's 16 and preach the sermon again. <laughs> Don't cackle over there. I, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that funny. Like, just giggle and we'll move on. She's, she's like, ha! Can't wait. It's on my calendar. Jesus says that those who are rich will be brought low. And what he means is this. Those who are satisfied and comfortable in life because they have finally made it are going to be brought low because they're not desperate anymore. And when you're not desperate, you're not humble. And when you're not humble, you don't think of other people first. Desperation creates humility, and humility allows you and gives you the space in your life to think of other people first. But notice the love of God. Mary's song at the beginning of Luke also says this. It's almost like Jesus might have gotten it from his mother. Imagine that. He learned from his mom. That's a different sermon. Merry Christmas. We'll talk about that next year. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Then he says, woe to you who are rich, for you will be made poor. Do you see what's happening here? This is the love of God. Watch. The poor are blessed because, it's not because they're poor like they don't have money. They know that they are in need even if they have money. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean your bank account is low. It means that you know that no matter what I have or don't have, my need for Christ doesn't rise or fall with what I attain or lose. And so he says, blessed are you who are poor. And he says, woe to you who are rich, for you will become poor. But when the rich become poor, what does he say? Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are, uh, woe to you who are laughing now, who think this world is so funny because you're so successful and you're so all that, that now you just giggle your way through life, but woe to you because I'm going to make you mourn. But what does he say to those who mourn? Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall laugh. So when the proud laughter turns to mourning, he then looks at that person and says, blessed are you. He's not talking about all these different kinds of people. He's talking about the cycle that we will go through. When we are on our high horse, he kicks us off. And when we're down, he says, blessed are those who are down. And he lifts them up. Mary, when she sings, says, she says, he has taken down the mighty and he has raised up the lowly. But when he takes down the mighty, what do they become? The lowly. (laughs) And what does he do with the lowly? Raises them up. His love doesn't stop. 
it fights and it fights and it fights until it makes you right without violating you. The reason why eternity is real is because eternity reveals how patient God is. Somebody said to me, how do you know God is patient? And I just stole something Chris Green said, but I didn't tell them it was Chris Green. I was like, well, I've been pondering this for a while now. I said, time, time is literally the result of God's patience. If God wasn't patient, there'd be no more time. But all this stuff that he just sits over and it's going crazy, he's being patient. It says the patience of God or the kindness of God is meant to lead to repentance. He will wait you out. So hurry up. We can hasten the restoration of all things by saying, you know what? I don't want to just live for myself. I want to be discipled. I want to jump in to this community of faith, and I don't want Sundays just to be about either me and my healing or me and my celebration, but I want to be filled with the love of God and anchored by my brothers and sisters so I can go into all the world, reach down into the abyss, pull people up over time, and see what God has in store. Let's stand to our feet this morning. It's making me work hard today. It's Super Bowl Sunday. This is probably good, though, because I'm about to eat my face off. So I'm going to eat all my feelings today. As we get ready to come to the table of the Lord, I want us to think about this. For all of the Bible experts in the room, when Jesus brought... Peter to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured before them. And they discern somehow, probably by listening very closely, that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. And Peter says, it's good that we're here. I've read a lot of Moses and Elijah. They're even cooler in person than they are on paper. I'm going to build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why? Because he wants this moment to last. Because he likes being around Moses and Elijah. Because they're people of popularity. Hear me, Salem. They're people of means, notoriety, celebrity. Imagine somehow housing. Like, that's like being like, guys, Elvis really isn't dead. I got him up in a tabernacle on Mount Beacon. He's singing. People would be like, you're crazy. But they'd go because curiosity makes us do crazy things. God says, don't build any tabernacles. I don't want you making this moment last. We all know that story. I'm driving in my car this week, and I thought to myself, I just had a thought. Why didn't Peter ask to build tabernacles on Mount Calvary? Why didn't Peter look at Jesus and say, there's two criminals here. It's good that we're here. Let me build three tabernacles, one for you and one for each of these criminals because I want them to stay with you. I have a feeling God would have said, go ahead, Peter, and build. We want to build dwelling places on the Mount of Transfiguration where the people we're around cost us nothing to be around. We don't want to build tabernacles where the criminals are. But here's the reality. God built a tabernacle on Mount Calvary where the criminals were, and his name is Jesus. 
and God dwelt there. And he will dwell there as long as he needs to until all of us say, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? But I want Salem Tabernacle to be a church that isn't interested in building tabernacles on the flashy Mount of Transfiguration, but I want us to be building dwelling places for people on Mount Calvary so they can sit at the presence of the Lord, at his feet, at the cross, until they feel their burdens lift and their life get light and their hearts fill with joy. You are those tabernacles that Peter now says, behold, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter realized that he didn't get to build those tabernacles because Christ is building this one, the church. And he wants you to dwell in places where other people don't want to dwell. And you say, well, how will I have the strength to do that? Look around. This is your strength to do that. We are all the way that we can hang out in the world and not be, we can be in it, but not of it. And all those old school things you used to hear said, this room is how we're strong enough to really affect change. What does it matter what we're doing if we're really not bringing change to people who desperately need it? Not wicked people who are on their way to hell, but broken people who need healing. What are we doing if it's not affecting that? All the opinions we have about fabrics and Eucharist and baptism and all this. What does it all matter at all if somebody out there isn't saying, I feel better after I was with you? That's what matters. That's why we're here. I feel better when I'm with you. Let's feed on the food that strengthens us and makes us the kinds of people that others feel better when they're around. On the night when our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. You're invited to this table. And as often as you come to this table, come to this table in remembrance of me joining yourself back to me again. Salem, whenever we eat this silly little meal, we are obeying the words of Jesus by becoming one with him again at a table so that we can be members who go out and remember. And after supper, he took the gigantic chalice of wine. (laughs) And he said... This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And you could disagree with me all you want about this. But at this point, the disciples say, who's going to betray me? And of all the things he could have said, he says, the one who dips his hand with me in this. They all did. Judas gets up and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 before you go. Dip your hand in this. Because if you leave now, You're going to leave under the old covenant and it is going to crucify you for what you're about to do. But before you go betray me, dip your hand in this. This is the blood of the new covenant. It can reach down to where you're about to go. Now go and do what you came to do quickly. That is love of an order that we don't have words to describe. Says Judas, you've dipped your hand in the Passover long enough, but you got to dip your hand in this before you leave because this What this represents can heal you tonight. 
And Judas ends up throwing the money back and saying, I betrayed innocent blood. What love entered his life to make him say, I made a mistake. But sometimes the system that you're around is so strong, even if you repent, the system doesn't forgive you. And they said, whatever, we're going to buy a field with this. And they send him out. The priests who should have been there to affirm his forgiveness. When Judas threw the money back, the priest should have said, son, you're forgiven. He confessed. And the priest should have said, come over here to this lamb. Let's seal this forgiveness. But they didn't. They just let him hang. The church isn't going to be like that system. When people come here and say, I think I've spent my whole life betraying innocent blood, we're going to say, come on in. There's a lamb for you. And his blood will always forgive you. Always. Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him, and sanctify us also. We are all the ones who betrayed you. We are all dipping our hands in this cup with you. And we're asking you to heal us. We're asking you to restore us. We're asking you to make us whole. Show us where in our life we have grievous ways that don't allow us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I ask, Father God, that you change them. Give us new desires right now. Let new desire rise up within my life and overcome all the things that want to repress that new desire. Let it just burst forth like grass bursting out of the concrete. Let it just burst forth so that I can leave here today with new desires and new ideas of how I can love my neighbor as myself, as you love me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you partake with me this morning? Worship team, you can come up here. Please take some time and digest what was just said in a spirit of worship before we leave.
Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.